we're going to get to real talk. Now, you know what? No more no more gossip. It's only happy talk now. You should just come into the show on that, just so nobody has any context for it. Exactly. Um. <laughs> Ooh, what were we gossiping about? Hey there, Internet. My name is Jack Packard. I'm Darren Mooney. I'm Marty Sleva. And this is the Escapist Movie Podcast. Quick little uh, news update is the Escapist Movie Podcast will be going on a brief hiatus slash retooling period as we figure out where we want the direction of the show to go. Most likely it will be, you know, us just gibbering about movies and TV shows still, but maybe with a different name. So heads up, we might be gone for a couple weeks. I don't know. Uh, but this week we are talking about something that I'm I'm very very excited to talk about. I actually I I came up with this idea over for slightly something else with Yahtzee as we were talking about arty farty bullshit indie games, which I love. I love arty farty bullshit. I say that uh, in a in a very loving way. Uh, but we were talking about indie video games and how usually when a video game reaches into the arty farty they always go sadness and despair and loss and i do feel like it is the same on the film end of the spectrum anything that's drama worthy oh it's always about divorce or death or cancer or your dad has alzheimer's uh you know we that's where we go to we go to dark places and that to me that's easy like oh yeah everyone's sad bullshit i want to discuss art that scratches at joy and after yahtzee and i did that episode i started watching ted lasso which is a brilliant tv show on a streaming channel that no one has i didn't even know i had it i i had a subscription i didn't even know i had apple plus but it's a show that dissects joy and optimism in a very real way and i love it so much and thank you both for coming and talking to me about joy and happiness I'm glad you mentioned that us into watching it. Yeah, thank you, uh, thank you so much for having us. And yeah, I, I do agree that uh, uh, Ted Lasso is uh, disarmingly joyful when 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 you enter. At least for me, when I started watching it, I I was I was like a bit worried mm. because it's just not my speed of thing. Uh, but it absolutely won me over. I think by the end of the second episode. Mm. Can I ask when you started watching this, actually? Because this is one of the interesting things about the, the Ted Lasso kind of love that seems to have happened. Yeah, I'm wondering, it, is a part of it that it's during the pandemic and like everybody's locked at home and now more than ever we need this uh, in a very profound, serious way to get Jack Jack's point? Uh, mm. Yes, it was during the <laughs> pandemic. And yes, it was after the first season had finished and it was uh, sort of the, like you mentioned, it was the perfect circumstances under which something like this could exist which is funny because on the game side we had animal crossing come out right at the start of the pandemic and i feel like to me like those are those are the two defining they're not works of the pandemic in that they weren't made during the pandemic or about it but they were like the the defining crutches for people to use to hobble our way towards i guess what we thought was an end to a pandemic but turned out to just be the next chapter An interlude. <laughs> interlude. Hello. Exactly. Hello. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I I only recently like I only started watching it a couple weeks ago. There there aren't many episodes and they're all very short episodes, which is very mm-hmm. nice, uh, because sometimes you only have thirty minutes. So I I didn't start watching it until after season two had already come out a little bit. 
I, I literally only started watching it when Jack messaged me and I said we were going to ask, could we talk about this week? And I was like, yeah, that's been on my list. And it's like, <laughs> I will now, I'm like, I'm at the stage where I can only watch things when other people ask me to. It's a very strange state to be at, but you get into it as a film and television <laughs> critic. So it's like, yeah, I will hunker down and I will watch uh, all 15 episodes of this. Um, so that that is how I came to it as well, actually. Yeah, right. it's kind of it's kind of perfect though that like if your list is like my list, it's just never ending. And so yes. if someone's like, "Hey, can you please do this?" I'm like, "Yes, thank you yeah. for telling me what to do because I have <laughs> I, this is like terrifying for me to just stare into this but abyss." What if we could fold that into some sort of work project? Then you have That's to watch it. it, and you go, "Finally, I have a I have a real excuse to watch it." Yeah. <laughs> right, and and so like. I feel like as a in in the era of prestige television, which we are well into, we are well into a platinum age of entertainment, an age of opulence, if you will. This to me is a show that that takes a character like Ted Lasso as a character is so joyful and optimistic that it causes problems for him and the world around him. And uh, not since uh, a children's movie like Inside Out have you have I seen at least something that really delves into this teeter totter of like being joyful and the counterbalance and like the toll it takes on a person to give hope <coughs> to other people, you know. Mm -hmm. And also, I think like the nuance with which it deals with this idea. And again, this is one of the, the interesting things about it, just in case people refer to context. The character of Ted Lasso began, I believe, in NBC sports ads. Um, and in yep. fact, you can go online on YouTube and watch them. It was primarily like NBC bought oh, the really? Premier League. And we're like, how do we convince Americans to watch uh, what you guys call soccer, but what most other people just call football? <laughs> and they're like, we'll get Jason Sudeikis to come in and he'll play a character. He'll be an American and he'll be meeting it. And a lot of the humor in the first couple of episodes is taken directly from that. So things like the fact that people call him wanker and he has no idea what it means. Things like the, oh, we're going to go out and we're going to play four quarters. You mean two halves? Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I mean. Can you explain the offside rule? All that sort of stuff is all in the original ads. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's kind of fascinating that you have like Lasso arrive and he's presented as, and again, this is maybe something to talk about in terms of like joy and happiness and we come back to it. But one of the archetypes of the American kind of character as seen abroad, because a lot of this is shot on location in the UK. Uh, a lot of the production team are American. So, for example, it includes Sudeikis himself as a show as a showrunner, writer, uh, producer. It has Bill Lawrence, who's responsible for Scrubs and I think Spin City and stuff like that. Ooh, okay. um, but it also a lot of the talent on screen is British. A lot of the celebrities who appear are British. There were a lot of moments watching this where I was wondering, like, do Jack and Marty appreciate how wonderful it is that they managed to get Floris to do like a two minute cameo? Or is that just some random person who happens to be on television? Like a whole bunch of like cultural context that I kind of love that they put in there. But it's, but it's that archetype of an American, like, because one of the things, one of the big things in recent years has been the portrayal of Americans abroad and, and kind of the relationship between mm -hmm. America and the rest of the world. And I mean, the Suicide Squad on HBO Max is like arguably like the most grim and cynical take on that. It's, it's the idea of like what America means to the rest of the world. But generally speaking, um, what I love about Ted Lasso is Ted Lasso taps into what, for me, has always been a kind of a ubiquitous presence in pop culture and kind of like a, a way in which at least Europeans and Western Europeans have looked to Americans, particularly in the wake of, say, World War II and the Marshall Plan and stuff like that, which is the idea of these people who are, and apologies for stereotyping both Jack and Marty as Americans on this podcast, but like, please do as, as Irish people, as British people, um, as hell, even French and Germans and then kind of Spanish and, and that kind of region of the world, we look at Americans and we see people who are incredibly polite, relentlessly optimistic, uh, incredibly chipper, uh, refuse to be beaten down by the world 
and just insist that they can make things better by trying really hard to do it. They aren't quite world-worn and cynical. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that archetype, which is a fixture, has been a fixture of like, you know, pop culture through the 80s and into the 90s. Look at any European films, uh, look at any British films, look at British TV shows. And obviously in the 21st century, that archetype has kind of fallen by the wayside a bit. I'm kind of really glad watching Ted Lasso to see that kind of brought back to the fore. Because like Ted Lasso is that kind of like ideal image of an American abroad where he, mm. there is a little bit of a culture clash. He He's never going to love tea, um, but he he is incredibly optimistic and he makes a lot of the people around him better. Mm. Um, and I love that the show doesn't take an easy path. He meets with resistance as he goes. You have people calling him out. But you have that kind of wonderful visual metaphor in the opening credits where he sits down in the stands. And as he sits down, the seats around him change color because you have this rippling effect outwards of, of kind of decency mm. and niceness. And Not the idea just change is that color, they clean up the graffiti. They, they literally do, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, like, which is, is just, and then in the second season, you have the title credits change so that the rest of the cast come in as well. So he's no longer sitting alone. Mm. And I kind of love that that idea of kind of rippling out like niceness is something that is is slowly earned. It's not something that's magically fixed. It's not as if he arrives and overnight everything is just perfect. But <laughs> gradually he kind of wears the other characters down. I I love I, I really love that aspect of the show. Mm -hmm. Well, and it feels like so many uh, stories about American abroad, in my opinion, don't sort of have that same level of curiosity and like childlike wonderment that that Ted has. It's you always get these kind of fish out of water or oh like. Emily in Paris or all this like just real just like shallow superficial bullshit uh, and I think to you mean me Golden Globe nominee oh, yeah. Emily. Oh, Emily, Emily in Paris I believe is how they pronounce it um, oh, yeah. excuse me excuse me for not lauding it with its own awards uh, but uh, to me the the, the I, weirdly enough the, the American traveler abroad that Ted Lasso reminds me the most of is Anthony Bourdain in terms of that curiosity and that wonderment and obviously Bourdain has a very uh uh entertaining and and well-earned cynical edge to him or he, mm -hmm. he, he did um uh and and so i'm curious to see how ted grows from where he is because even the i don't know how many how much spoilers you guys want to get into it but uh the season two arc uh uh with with the the therapist and the psychologist yes. that that comes into the team uh starts to sort of turn the the mirror that ted had always that he would allow people to see the best of themselves. He's starting to realize that that mirror doesn't work on himself anymore. So mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting to see where the show is going to go for the rest of the second season. And uh, into the third, I believe they've renewed it for another two after this. They've renewed it for at least one. I believe the, yeah. the plan is Bill Lawrence has said, <clears throat> Zudeckis is committed to three. Okay. He doesn't know if Zudeckis can continue on past that. So he has structured yeah. the show. So it will have a satisfying conclusion if it wraps up. After gotcha. That. Um, and it does like, again, like, and again, this speaks to, to something that Jack said at the start there about like true art and inverted commas, prestige television, all that sort of stuff. Like this is a sitcom. This is a sitcom mm -hmm. from, it's it's an archetypal sitcom premise, which is like a fish out of water is dropped into a situation in which they have absolutely no experience. And all the characters are initially very broadly drawn and over time. The actors and the writing adds more shading to them. Mm -hmm. But there's a, there's a set status quo and, and characters interact within that and there are long-term changes. But it's also quite close to what we assume prestige television looks like where there is a clear arc and structure and there are clear themes and there is actual growth because one of the the big things with sitcoms and not a negative thing to be absolutely clear just as like a feature of the genre is that at the end of every episode the characters all reset back to default <laughs> joey is always going to be the horny one. Oh, yeah ross is always going to be the angry one and what's interesting about ted lasso is that over the course of even like the 15 episodes the half 
of the three seasons that we're supposed to get, mm -hmm. you can see that the characters have changed and kind of grown. So I, I think I think that's that's worth noting as well. Like Absolutely. you can see the, the change of the yeah. characters. Well, and, and there's there's no like there's no magic you know fixing uh, for the third act. Like that's a very sitcom thing. Is we reach the third act, everything's fixed, then we can have our nice little button mm -hmm. where it's like. One of the things that I appreciated most about the show from a character standpoint is that Ted doesn't win right away. <laughs> like literally his football team loses quite often. And even though he's got the gumption and the aw shucks about him, they make a big point of saying like, oh, you're not actually like the greatest football coach ever. You're just a good guy. And <laughs> so it's just a thing I enjoy about it. And I think to double down on that, actually, what I find interesting is that, like, as much as the show is about Ted's optimism, and this comes back to what Marty said about the character of, I think, Dr. Sharon Fieldstone, mm -hmm. who's the therapist who arrives. But, like, even in the first season, you have this interesting tension going on where everybody's like, yeah, <clears throat> Ted, the way that you coach is brilliant. The way that you bring out the best in other people is brilliant. The way that you are patient and considerate and you listen is fantastic. But at the same time you are being paid to do a job. That job is to win football matches. <laughs> How do you plan to accomplish that? Because you have it, like there's a moment in, I believe the end of the first season where like coach, who is the character who followed him from America, his closest friend, the man who has the closest understanding at arguably like at the start of the first season, the only character who has lassos back and isn't setting out to undermine or sabotage him. Mm -hmm. At the end of the first season, you have a moment where like coach just loses it. And he's like, no, at at a certain point, you have to decide that you are going to win. Mm -hmm. At a certain point, like you being nice and pleasant and charming doesn't accomplish anything of note. You know, it, you have to like, are you willing to do what it takes to win? And I like that you have and you had that same conversation with Fieldson uh, mm -hmm. at the end of, I think, the second episode of the second season. Maybe it's the third where like you think there's and I, I really love this. What I really love about the show is that you think there's going to be a conflict between the two. You think that the two are going to be at odds with one another. And it's very clear that Lasso is uncomfortable with her being there initially. But you have at the end him going, look, you're going to submit your report. Why don't you tell me to my face what you're going to say? And you imagine as an audience member, you're going to hear, well, everybody here is dysfunctional and you're just covering it up with your niceness. But she's like, no, this is a very psychologically healthy club. The way that you run it is contributing to that. And these people are all benefiting from you being there. And he's like, oh, great. That means if it's if it's not broke, don't fix it. And she's like, yeah, but you haven't won a match. You think that's not <laughs> yeah. broke. We need yeah. to have a conversation about that, which yeah. it's a wonderful balance. I yeah. think. Sorry, sorry to cut you off. Yeah, and it's a nice it's it it plays off the like Ted's core drama in the in the first season with his marriage falling apart. And uh, like, uh, it's interesting that this show, which is able to capture the essence of joy and, and bottle it in such a way that few other shows have, is also manages to have these moments of like legitimate heartbreak. And, and there's the scene where he has the, the panic attack when the team yes. goes to karaoke. And like, to me, that was such a real depiction of that and his, mm -hmm. his depression when he gets back to his hotel room and how he, you know, lashes out at, at his assistants who, who, you know, did nothing wrong, but were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And like, mm -hmm. it's, it's a very realistic portrayal uh, of, of those sort of like really grieving emotions uh, juxtaposed with him, you know, the scenes earlier in the show where, where he's giving someone the little the little green plastic army man and giving him the talk about it or, you know, hand or baking the, the biscuits for yeah. for, you know, the owner and everything. Mm -hmm. So it feels like in order to fully understand the joy, it needs to be juxtaposed with those like those real those moments of heartbreak and longing. Absolutely. They have they have mm -hmm. these like 
almost like contrastingly haunting scenes when Ted is alone. A lot of times, you know, he'll spend his nights drinking alone and <laughs> looking in the mirror. And it's, you know, obviously yeah, it's a funny show. It's, it's an overall joyful show, but yeah, they have these little peaks behind Ted's curtain uh, mm. to give it a, a more well-rounded character where you're like, oh, this, this joy, this optimism that Ted Lasso as a character has, has a cost. Mm-hmm. And we get little peaks at that cost. And it it just, it that's what turns it from sitcom to prestige television to me, because it actually attempts to, uh, to explore like the emotional effects of a character, Ted Lasso, which mm-hmm. I'm sure like he, uh, Jason Sudeikis came up with just as a joke and like, yep, Lasso, perfect. It's American. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it is funny that we're talking about how genuine this is when, like Darren said, this came from an ad like and uh, and so to me it's almost like those two ideas are so hard to to connect with each other in the same way that like the 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 don Cheadle villain of space jam 2 was algorithm (laughs) and it's like this movie is the the epitome of yeah the epitome of a movie designed by the algorithm so it's like did you do you guys really understand what what this thing is about um but yeah it is i mean you know because what other example didn't we have like the the cavemen show wasn't that a Started oh, as an ad and then became yeah with show. like with Nick Kroll and lasted like four episodes or whatever. So oh, if that much, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, like to, to mention, like you mentioned the idea of Sudeikis there, and actually, like this is one of the things that I do find interesting, and it's something that I actually love in art because generally there's this sense when you're talking about nice people in film and television, it's this idea that nice is naive or innocent or intrinsic. Um, and the idea that it's just fundamentally part of a person and they're just like that. And again, it's it's this thing where we live in a world that is so cynical that in many cases, it seems like the only way you can write a nice person is to imagine. But they're just odd. That, that's that, that. They're just always like that. That's, yeah. that's, that's what it is. That's their thing. They're like aliens. It's like, you know, don't try to understand. It's like religious faith or you know like yeah. when when kind of like i i can't wrap my head around it so he's just nice all the time mm-hmm. i think what i like about ted lasso and i'm trying to think there was another tv show or movie that did something similar recently and i really appreciate it as well is that it demonstrates that like being nice is hard and it's work and it's stuff that you commit to and it's it's basically moral hygiene it's <laughs> you you have to keep yeah. at it yeah you you have to keep trying and like the the show, as as Jack said, does peek behind the curtain. You get those shots of him raiding the minibar. You get the shot of him like at Christmas watching It's a Wonderful Life, the mm-hmm. most depressing Christmas movie of all time. If you stop it in the right place, uh, <laughs> drinking half a bottle of, of whiskey or brandy. Mm-hmm. And I think like and this is something that I found deeply, deeply moving about it, actually, which is strange because I think and we can maybe come back to this in a moment because I, I, I want to actually talk about it as a comedy, but like what I find strangely... <laughs> yeah, Before like we get Marty, too dark. yeah. As, as, as Marty said, like we're talking about like as, as prestige drama, but yeah. like I, what I find really interesting about it is that like Sudeikis, and, and this is fair game because Sudeikis did an interview with I think GQ this weekend where he acknowledged it. Uh, Sudeikis has said basically that, yeah, that the marital breakup that the character goes through in the first season... Uh, was drawn from his own personal experience going through his own uh, marital breakup. Mm-hmm. And and there's all sorts of stuff that you can see on online and things like that. When he accepted his Emmy uh, and he was kind of like a little, he wasn't, he didn't seem like he was necessarily all there. And and he said like even, and it's really touching and heartbreaking because he's very honest about it in like a way that doesn't blame the other person. He's mm-hmm. like, I, I don't understand it now. I might understand it in a year, 
I might understand it in two years. In five years, I'll probably have a better perspective. And I feel like you you see that kind of channeled into it in a way that feels very genuine, where the character does seem like he is hurting. It's not like this is water off a duck's back. It's not like he's shrugging and the pain goes away. Or, you know, he just keeps his eyes open and whistles to himself and all the darkness in the world recedes. It's like, no, he, he faces it and he struggles with it sometimes, but he commits to the the act of being good mm-hmm. um, in a way that, that kind of makes other people better around him, which is a portrayal of, of goodness and niceness that I don't think we see very often and which I, I actually really love seeing here. It's like, yeah, it is. It's hard work, but it's it's worth it. And you do it because it's right, not because mm-hmm. it's easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was curious uh, with you saying that this is a portrayal we don't see often, and I completely agree with it because how you guys were talking before about how uh, uh, sitcoms for the longest time seem to have a reset button at the end of it every episode, and then even Seinfeld, like the the whole thing ends where it starts, like they've learned nothing. That's <laughs> Same the whole conversation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the whole the whole point of the of the entire finale. Um, but it feels like in the past. 10 maybe 15 years we finally started to get these sitcoms where you can look at every main character and they are all good and decent people like maybe they have flaws but they are all good and decent people and i'm thinking stuff like parks and rec and then even moving on to yeah yeah, the good place schitt's creek like uh, uh you know people go through these transformations and they have like uh nuance and depth to them but they are ultimately decent people Shit's uh, that's Shit's Creek I'm by the uh, end of Shit's Creek. By, I think by, by the end, end of Shit's Creek. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a journey. The um, entire yeah, point of Shit's yeah. Creek is is that but, they're awful. They're <laughs> I mean, I mean, not 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 to spoil the good place, but the entire point of the first season is that it's not the good place. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> touche, touche. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a balance, right? Because you have you have something like The Good Place, where they're fundamentally good people, but flawed. And then you have, like, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, yeah. where everyone's an asshole, and that's the yeah. joke, you know? So I think we've had a good balance. Yeah. I, I, I want to ask, actually, you guys, because I've been thinking about this. This is something that I think about when I think too much about television, um, is the, the weirdness of... So back in the 90s, um, obviously different cultural landscape, um, different environment, different headspace, different view of how the world worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously that changed the 21st century. But you had like shows like, for example, Star Trek The Next Generation, which I think Seth MacFarlane described as the like best workplace in the history of television, where it's just competent people who work very well together and none of them are ever trying to backstab or screw each other. They're all working like for the best purpose together. And I find it fascinating that it, like, if you wanted to do Star Trek The Next Generation today on television, right, arguably you can't even do it in the Star Trek franchise. So, like, Discovery has much greater tension within the crews. Picard, you have to go outside of Starfleet. Lower Decks is a sitcom that's animated. Um, And I wonder, like, do you, today, if you want to tell a story that is largely about nice people who are good at their jobs and pleasant to one another, is the only forum for that idea a sitcom rather than a drama so like we like it, it's notable that when marty ran through the list of those shows they were all half hour sitcoms <laughs> as if to say the only way that we as a culture can accept this idea that maybe people aren't terrible to one another is if you frame it in a context where there should be a laugh track at the end is that is that fair i'm, I'm like am i missing anything i mean when jack was mentioning that this is part of the era of prestige tv literally every other prestige yeah. tv show i think of is 
extremely dark and and just very bleak and cynical and stuff that i love like you know mad men and breaking bad and you know halt and catch fire and the leftovers yeah yeah but i mean like there's a reason why the defining book of the like prestige television era is literally titled difficult men you know (laughs) (laughs) well to me that's the this is the exact purpose of this conversation which is i feel like Everyone else has taken the easy way out because it's so easy to talk about dark and depressing things because in our heads, that's taboo. But if you start to look at the pop culture landscape, that's all there is. And so mm-hmm. I, th- I think what we have here is, is a, uh, uh, expectations versus reality where, uh, you know, when, when you grow up, when you, when you, uh, when you're when you're raised catholic uh, darren you can be with me here you know like <laughs> sorry marty i just don't know your backstory no no you nailed nailed it okay. darren could be right oh, here perfect you know like like you know funerals mourning that sort of things is a very like push it down deep inside never talk about it uh, also least- you're you're a terrible human being and you've sinned and you need to absolve yourself and you will only be clean for like 30 minutes after you clean yourself before you make some sort of or other moral mess that is entirely your fault sorry not to not to oversimplify that is maybe not the universal experience of catholics growing up but oh, as we an got Irish two Catholic- people on two different continents who experience the same thing <laughs> yeah. just putting yeah. that out there yeah. but yeah. but no so like that is the like general taboo don't don't talk about these emotions repress push down you're the bad person and so like we are told that like these dark things sadness uh uh sorrow uh what do you call it? mourning we don't talk about those things and that's where like art comes through mm-hmm. But then if you look at the art landscape, that's all that's out there. And so I think that we have a I think it's a horse before the cart situation to answer your question where people assume if it's something, if it's talking about joy, if it's talking about optimism, if it is funny, it therefore can't be prestige when that's the real challenge. Can you talk about happiness in a meaningful way? Can you be as good as Mr. Holland's opus? That's the question. <laughs> that, is, that, is the, that is the Escapist Movie Podcast. And by the way, since we're retooling it, I can now reveal that the clever punchline is that the Escapist Movie Podcast was always the temp title. The Escapist Movie Podcast. Temp. Temp. Beautiful. Yeah. Temp. Nick wouldn't let me reveal that while it was on the air. But is that now true? we're off. It's, yeah. Oh, <laughs> he said, don't call it that. Don't it's like, it. okay. Okay. It's, That's the, incredible. <laughs> the Escapist Movie Podcast <laughs> is the temp title that was the temp title yeah literally i feel like i pulled pulled a long con it's it's, it's, it was great it was great while it lasted um (laughs) but then it screwed us in the google analytics it really really did that was all my fault i apologize (laughs) that was was why he said don't call it the temp podcast (laughs) it's like okay (laughs) which is great but but so like this is this is my whole my my whole my mission in life now is to get people to take funny happiness and joy more seriously mm-hmm. um and i feel like ted lasso is one of the barely handful of examples that i can think of in in my lifetime of pop culture 
And I mean, like, it's telling that it has kind of caught on in the way that it did. And I mean, I do I do think to, to Marty's point, to your point, to my point, I do suspect that being in the middle of a global pandemic mm-hmm. where so much of the immediate art coming out was stuff that had been made beforehand and was really dark and depressing. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember, like, and again, sorry, this is not to get too dark and depressing, but like when the pandemic hit, I remember flicking through television. And it's like, oh, hey. Philip Roth adaptation about America descending into fascism. <laughs> Flick Childs, okay. Oh, Mark Ruffalo's playing twins. Uh, one of them is a killer. Okay, um, uh, let's keep going here. Oh, oh, there's a there's a reboot of that uh, of that classic like fifties uh, legal drama starring Matthew Reese. It was going to have uh, what's his face Robert Downey Jr. in it. It's going to be gr- oh no, there's a dead baby. Okay. Oh yeah. Uh, keep going. Yeah, you remember? And I love that. I actually love that show. I just. Uh, not oh, that, that dead baby is terrifying. Oh, that was yeah. like a top five terrifying dead, dead baby. Yeah. <laughs> I love that Marty has a list. It's like the oh, yeah. David Letterman yeah. list of dead babies. It's like it just hot right <laughs> in at number dead five. Babies. <laughs> Fictional wow. dead babies. Because real dead babies are sadder. Obviously. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <I'm gonna stop. laughs> That's number one. And obviously. this is why we're retooling the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but. But like no, like there was this big thing when the pandemic hit of like all the, the as you said, prestige television mm. coming on was very heavy, very serious, very weighty. And like you had a lot of people making the point that like what immediately took off during the pandemic wasn't any of that stuff. Like all mm-hmm. the stuff that HBO had planned to like sweep the Emmys for the next two years mm-hmm. got flushed down the toilet because nobody was watching it. They were watching instead Love Island. They were watching instead Tiger King. And I know that those are like... You know, I know that Love Island is also a dark and depressing story about people who are stuck in a desperate situation, much like Tiger King. But um, it's but like it's it's something that is produced to be fun. It's and seen as, yeah, it's sleazy. Or yeah. It's trashy without using that in a derogatory way because mm-hmm. it knows that it is. Things like Netflix's dating show The Circle or um, Sexy Beasts, which is something that I cannot believe exists, but apparently does. But it, you had the yeah. No, when I first read about Sexy Beast, I thought it was like a TV show adaptation of the movie Sexy Beast. And I was like, great. Love it. Love that movie. Yeah. I was like, this is going to be great. I'm like, oh, no, it's no, no. They're dressing up. This isn't good. Yeah. Yeah. But like, that is what people wanted to watch in the pandemic. And like, obviously, you have things like the the surge and rewatches, people Mm. rewatching Friends, people rewatching The Office. And I do kind of like, I love that like Lasso has kind of like triumphed in that because it's a moment where we as a culture... Like if if Jack's right, if Jack's Jack's argument, and I think there is some basis in Jack's argument, which is the idea that historically we look at things that are dark and edgy as mature and reflecting Mm. the real human condition, looking into our deep, depraved souls and scraping the bottom of the barrel and seeing what's in there. Uh, I do think that like in the past year and a half, we've reached a point where we're like, okay, but maybe enough. Maybe just take a breather. (laughs) And and I love that like Ted Lasso, which as we point out, its first season aired before the pandemic. It was Mm -hmm. produced before the pandemic. But like people seem to find it retroactively. And in fact, actually, if you go back and you read the early reviews of Ted Lasso when it first premiered, they're like, eh, it's, it's OK. It's, you know, it's grand. It's perfectly serviceable. Mm. But like over the course of the pandemic, it became this thing is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Can we give it all of the Emmys? Is that possible? <laughs> like, Can we give it last year's Emmys, too? Because we yeah. messed up. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. It, it was funny. It was always funny to see people who would be like, I'm not going to watch it. I'm not going to watch it. And then you'd inevitably see the tweet. All right, I finally gave it and watched it. And yeah, everyone was right. It's really good. <laughs> and, and by the way, <laughs> every, every single like person that. is like, also, apparently I just had Apple Plus TV. I didn't know because no one watches Apple Plus. Yeah. A- but if, A- it, 
Apple Plus is so poorly advertised. Mm-hmm. Like that's like, yes. and there's some really good stuff on there. Like Mythic, I know that Marty's also Mythic watching Quest. Mythic Quest. Yeah. Like yeah, Mythic Quest has been my go-to feel good mm-hmm. pandemic like sitcom because that's that's you know it's it's a little bit more people are assholes, but it's also sure. assholes who work together can sometimes make great art through the mm-hmm. process of collaboration. Which is like, yeah, that, that's that's fantastic. And it works yeah. my little heart. I think Myth- yeah. Mythic Quest is like a really good example. There, I, I once, uh, I'm going to I'm gonna uh, divert for a little bit, but it's going to come back to Mythic Quest, which, yes, is a very good show. I mean, listen, great, great cast, great writers, great production. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I once tried to write a children's book called The Littlest Toe. Bear with me for a second. It did not go well, cause I, mostly because I didn't finish it. But it was- uh, That the- sounds like no mean feat. Ooh. <laughs> The idea was about understanding like what um, what you're good at and what you're not good at, right? The littlest toe they can't reach that the tall stuff, even though they want to. That was you know that was the idea. But I think Mythic Quest, like uh, overall, very good show. But I think it does a really good job of just like hammering uh, home that idea of like, oh, it's okay to be not good at some things. That's why mm-hmm. we have a team environment, yeah. which is a, like a very it's a different kind of positivity, but. Uh, but yeah, very very good job. That's that's my yeah. side story. Mythic Quest, good. I, I now I now want to read the Littlest Toe. So do I, actually. Yeah. Did, did anyone secure the rights to that? Is that going to be? Yeah. Like oh, hold on. Like, oh, hold on. Uh, P- oh mean, yeah, PBS passed. I'm, you could probably sell it for at least five digits. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. We tried to do a, a Broadway collaboration, but Stomp wanted out. Ooh. You really nailed it. You could have won all the Tonys. <laughs> Damn it, that's a better one. <laughs> okay, so yeah, we're here to announce actually that the uh, the new movie podcast is entirely pun based. <laughs> it just go, every episode goes until yeah, every episode goes until one of us just loses oxygen and passes out. Exactly. Our we have to see who the heel is. Yeah. Whoa! I like it. I like it. Uh, that's pretty baller. Um, okay, like we, I, I okay. So, I'm gonna throw something out to the group here because mm-hmm. I, I really like Ted Lasso. Um, two quick things, two quick things I would note on it. Mm-hmm. One is I binge it for this podcast, mm-hmm. which may not have been the ideal way to watch it. I, I, it's one of those things where I think I would probably have preferred watching it week on week as opposed to watching it all in one go because mm-hmm. uh, it does feel like I just gorged myself on biscuits that are very full of butter <laughs> and very nice, but I'm also a little bit. <laughs> Uh, floated afterwards mm-hmm. but um the other thing and this is maybe controversial is that as much as i like the show i'm not entirely convinced that it is very funny i don't i i agree with you. i do think it is funny but i don't think it is i, I don't think the reason it is so widely yes. beloved is for its comedic timing or i i think it's uh incredibly cast i think the yes, cast is yes. is pitch perfect uh i think like mythic quest it does a good job of uh introducing you into a world you might be foreign with without giving you a massive info dump so you don't need yes. to know anything about soccer and you can still enjoy this you don't need to know anything about video games and you can still enjoy mythic quest uh but yeah i don't i, I wouldn't say this is even one of the 10 20 funniest shows ever made in my mind but i love it all the same sure but it's very high on the dead baby list it's no, 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 no that no, was no, Perry no, no. Mason. <laughs> yeah, that was, <laughs> <laughs> that 
Sorry, I realized I didn't Sorry. actually name what the show with the dead baby was. Yeah. That is that was Perry Mason. So no, yeah, no, Perry Mason, like, we have Punch and Judy. Okay. Here we go. Okay. Wait, hold, no, <laughs> I just I just yeah. have I have a lot of lists here. I got it. I got it mixed up with the dead baby list. Can, right. can can we do like a Letterman segment? So can we just like blow Marty up to full screen and give him like a little countdown as he runs through the five? <laughs> I don't know if that's the segment I want to be on. Sure <laughs> <laughs> that you pitched it. <laughs> I thought this was the joy episode. Well, it is the joy. Episode. <laughs> I thought we were going to talk about Babe. <laughs> Oh, oh, we should talk about Babe. We should. Babe a, a pig in the yeah. city is a babe. Like, that's a great example. Like, yeah, yeah. Pig in the city is very dark, though. Pig in the city is like fair, fascist fair, fair, allegory, whereas the first Babe. No, right. and all, you know what? All I had was Ted Lasso, Inside Out, and Paddington Two. That was that was all I had on my <laughs> little list. droid trifecta. Uh, yeah, but but no, Darren. Uh, back to back to your your start here. I uh, I don't think it's controversial to say it's not very funny with that qualifier of very. <laughs> It is yeah. funny. Yes, I mean, like, I like, I. There were moments where I laughed out loud. Like, I love the the callback brick joke at the end of the first season with the sparkling yeah. water. That made me laugh out loud because that was just so earned. Yeah. Um. But it was one of the few times where I think I actually did laugh out loud. I was more likely to get kind of teared up and to kind of like just stare in the middle distance and like maybe audibly in my room by myself say, "Oh," <laughs> um, than I was to like laugh out loud. Because like no, it genuinely is like yeah. deeply, deeply moving. Yeah, I, I I was arguably more moved by Ted Lasso than I was by like three quarters of the Best Picture nominees this year. But I I did find myself watching it wondering like, is this is this a little bit more drama than comedy perhaps in some senses? Uh, I think the stuff I remember about it is the drama. Yeah. Um and uh less like I can I can recall scenes that moved me more than I can recall jokes that made me laugh if that makes more if that makes yeah. any sense i th i think i i mean i i'm not going to disagree with you that kind of like the the heartfelt character moments stick with you more but i also think that as a property ted lasso pulls off that balancing act incredibly well and it's tough for me to say i'm i'm incredibly biased because i am a laugher i have been i have been accused my entire life of being a fake laugher but I just love laughing so much that I I laugh. I laugh very loud at a lot of things. And anytime Roy Kent is on camera and does something good-hearted in his in his gravelly Roy Kent voice, I lose my shit. So we should point out, by the way, like that's Brett Goldstein. He is a writer on the show. Oh, is he? <laughs> yeah, like like he has done acting before, obviously, and he's he's done writing and directing mm -hmm. himself. But like, yeah, he was hired primarily as a writer, and they were like. You know what? You could just go in front yeah. of the camera and do this. Yeah. Brilliant and great. Uh, on a, si a, a tiny casting uh, tangent, uh, Hannah Waddingham, is that yes. how you say that? Who who plays, uh, you know, kind of Rebecca. The, the main boss lady, Rebecca, is also the shame lady from Game yeah. of Thrones. Yes. As yeah. soon as we figured, my wife and I figured that out, I was like, no effing way. And I just yeah. see her shame face. Every time, it's like, great. And she's also apparently just an incredible singer as well. And like yeah, the two, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, but this is the thing with the the weird situation. It's like Hugh Laurie. It's like he, when mm. Hugh Laurie goes to America, where like mm -hmm. everybody thinks that Hugh Laurie is this amazing, and he is an amazing dramatic actor who won all the Emmys and deserves all the awards. Yeah. But when you go back to Britain and you look at his filmography, it's like, oh yeah, he did a lot of sketch comedy. He was in Blackadder. Uh, he had stage partner with Stephen Fry. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like, yeah, that's the deal with Hannah Waddingham, where she was like, she, to Americans, she will always be the shame lady. Um, <laughs> but to like British audiences, it's like, no, she was on like uh, 
Benidorm, which is like a holiday sitcom for several years. Um, and that sort of thing. You know, she's on yeah. a is it like Friday Night Takeout or something like that. Mm-hmm. She has like her her career in the UK has always been sitcom based, which oh. is kind of interesting to see that kind of sharp. And she's again, she's phenomenal, like the rest of the cast. Mm. It'd be funny um, if it was the uh, the opposite was true for Adam Sandler. And like uh, you guys just thought <laughs> you guys just looked at Uncut Gems and Punch like, Drunk Love. Like we, we have Uncut Gems, uh, Punch Drunk Love and Rain of Fire. Those like yeah. those are the only no, Adam Ra- Sandler. Rain, uh, rain, rain on over, Rain on Rain, me. rain of me. Fire yeah. has dragons. Yeah, Rain of Fire is the one from Rob Bowman um, starring Matthew McConaughey and yeah. Christian Bale. You and it's also much better than that. the premise makes it sound. Um, yeah, Rain, Rain Over Me is Don, Don Cheadle, 9-11, Shadow of the Colossus. Yeah, yeah. Those are the only three things I remember from. That's right. Adam Sandler is a punk drummer and plays Shadow of the Colossus. Yeah. And redoes his kitchen. The, oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. I do love the idea that, though, uh, like European audiences have just associated him with Rain of Fire. <laughs> it's like, yeah, he's the guy from Rain of Fire. We only, they only, it was only out Wait, for a week over like here. It's like the, what, the Kazam thing? Like the genie movie yeah, that doesn't yeah, exist? Yeah, yes. yeah, it's yeah. kind of Mandela effect. The Mandela um, effect with Adam Sam. Adam <laughs> Sandler was in Rain of Fire. He was right. Remember? Because he was like, dragons are see good at the day and at night, but at dusk, oh, they can't see shit. That's what Adam Sandler said. I remember that. Wow. Okay. <laughs> getting getting back to it, uh, it is it is not a very funny show. But if you could imagine, like, imagine it was just like like optimism porn. If it was just like what was the that Sandra Bullock movie where she the Blind Side, the Blind Side. Thank you. That's yeah. exactly what I'm thinking of. <laughs> where she she white people fixed racism. Mm-hmm. Um, like if it was just optimism porn, I don't think it would hit as hard. But because it has this other side to the show, where it is a comedy, it does really good at setting up and paying off jokes. It, its timing is impeccable. It has that build and release of tension, where you know we kind of build during these darker moments, we build during the optimism porn moments, and then we have a, a literal spit take to finish mm-hmm. a season. If we didn't have that side of it, the show, I don't think, would would be prestige, would be as prestige as I feel it is. I mean, could something literally even exist if it's just if if it begins at, at this level of joy and optimism and it never wavers? Like, literally, what is that? Is that a story? Even? Like, <laughs> right. Yeah, where's your hero's journey? Where's your low point? Where's your arc? Where's your right. yeah. It's like, no. Frodo just goes about his day. He has a yeah. really nice lunch. We cover that in great detail. He mm-hmm. has a really nice dinner. We cover that in great detail. Has a good night's sleep. We also cover that in great yeah. detail. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Frodo goes on a lovely walk and drops his ring yeah. in a thing. Like, that's yeah. the story. Right. Yeah. Gad- well, no, but- Gandalf pops over and Frodo's not home because he's out for a walk. And it's yeah. like, that's the story. Um, but I, I think I think something like that is the blind side where where it's like, you know, like the 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 struggle is that I'm going to be the most optimistic. That's my Sandra Bullock impression. That's great. I Thank you. It. I've been working <laughs> yeah. on it for a while. Um, so that's what we get there where they try to shove the drama into the mm-hmm. optimism. And here it's like, no, no, we have we have the drama. We have the joy and we have the funny all in the same lasso soup. Yeah. And he it comes across as genuine as well, which uh, although I would I will say that w- like the top at the end of Inception, it wavered a little bit. I thought in the Christmas episode uh, in terms of uh, it just it no, it didn't feel like reality anymore. I mean, granted, they literally show Santa in the background at what? one point. So I, I don't think you're supposed to take that <laughs> face value. <laughs> 
I, I will raise my hand in defense of the Christmas episode and say okay. that that's one of the things I appreciate about it because it feels like it is oddly enough this kind of culture class American British thing, right? Where, and again, so much of what I like about Ted Lasso is that it is an American in England, but mm. it's it's very committed to that where it brings in English sports stars, it brings in English commentators, brings in English talking heads. Like they go on this morning with Philip Schofield and I'm like, I am the only person in this podcast who knows or cares who Philip Schofield is. And I'm like, I love that he did this. Um, but like <laughs> the Christmas episode is something that I associate with British rather than American TV. I know that there are exceptions that prove the rule, like the X-Files did. Um, was it uh, whatever that episode was with Edward Asner and the um, How the Ghost Stole Christmas? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But like yeah. there tend to be exceptional. It tends to be like a, a show that runs 10 seasons will do one single Christmas episode one year and that's it. You get it because it's designed for syndication mm -hmm. and you're going to be airing in syndication all year round. Whereas on the other hand, when you look at British television, Christmas specials are much more of a thing. Um, obviously, like, you know, I know that Jack is a classic, doc well, I say classic, classic new Doctor Who fan in that, he, <laughs> you know, going back to the Russell T Davies era. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the Christmas specials were a steady part of that. Yeah, yeah. Classic shows like, for example, Only Fools and Horses, uh, for years that's after a made up that show. no that's a yeah. made-up show yeah. don't don't try to don't try to do oh, that no, we, like, i know call oh, it was called green acres in america <laughs> 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 no you think you can get away with that like oh yeah it was a short-run oh, sitcom yeah, yeah. it was called uh, bobby's and boiled ham we're yeah. not buying your bullshit um step for the son is the american one right because there's a step toe and son Sa sanford and son sanford. okay so step yeah. So You're thinking of the Stepford Wives. That's no, the Step mother Toe of the... and Son, then, is the British one. Uh, but back to my point, like, Sorry. shows that have ended in the UK, like Only Fools and Horses starring David Jason, which I'm not going to give up, is definitely a thing, will do, like, Christmas episodes for years afterwards. Mm. Like, um, they did Miami twice in the 80s, where they sent the entire cast and crew over to Miami for Christmas, uh, several years after the show had ended. That's how big a deal it was. Shows like Call the Midwife will do a Christmas special every year as well. Mm -hmm. So I kind of like, I like that it's like, we're okay, yeah. this is a show about how odd it is being an American in England. Let's take that to its logical extreme and do an episode like it's a Doctor Who Christmas special, but for an American sitcom. And it's <laughs> yeah. going to be weird. It's going to mm -hmm. be unusual. It's going to be of questionable canonicity. Um, but I kind of love that the show commits to the bit, mm -hmm. uh, which, I, which, I, which I kind of like, I do admire that. And I think, yeah. And, and the, as, as kind of Marty said, being unrelentingly optimistic is something you kind of only get away with in that context, I think. Ab okay. Absolutely. You've you like, warmed me up to it. Yeah. The... I, I don't think they could have done a Ted Lasso Christmas special any other way. You know, the, the uh, you know, Higgins finally gets his giant family Christmas. Mm -hmm. the, the Grinch <laughs> goes around and gives away all of the gifts. Uh, and it ends in a musical number with actual Santa Claus flying <laughs> in they, the sky. They do. They do. Like, again and again, like as somebody who watches the, the Doctor Who Christmas special, you'll know that like a large part of doing a Christmas special British television is we convince the BBC to give us enough of a budget that we can rip off something can... from America that you recognize. Yeah. So like, for example, Doctor Who did like the Poseidon adventure, for example, one <laughs> with year. With Kylie Minogue. Uh, with Kylie Minogue yeah. because the BBC gave them a budget. So like this does like love actually. Like yeah. they do that's a right. love actually scene in the yeah. Christmas episode because that's a Christmas movie trope, which I kind of like, again, very much in the spirit of, of, of kind of like Christmas episodes, which I admire. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Also, oh, as someone who's taken a lot of antihistamines, I'm now just like rethinking the last 35 yeah. years of my life. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Great little beast. I would have killed. I, I, I think smell vision is a bad idea, but that episode should have had smell vision because I want to know what's going on there. <laughs>
Marty's top five things that need smell vision um. <laughs> It would all be a lot of Christmas episodes, actually. Yeah. Don't confuse that with any other lists. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> We cross the streams. <laughs> right. No. And, and so it's just like, I think, I think I'm, I'm really happy that, that we're doing this. Cause hopefully we can, we can start a voice here that does say that more emotions other than sadness and, or trying to get away with murder need to be explored within the realm of prestige television. Yes. The emotion of trying to get away with murder. Yeah. Viola Davis is kind of like, that's her specialty. It's like, give me all the Emmys for that, please. Um. So what would you say, like, because I'm trying to think, it, it, to me, it feels like there's been a, uh, maybe just because the last five years have been, you know, pretty shitty, that it seems like there's an online, like, uh, sort of like a an, a, a, a groundswell of, of, of people looking for sort of wholesome content in, in no matter which medium it comes in. And, you know, you saw the, the fascination with Bob Ross a couple yeah, of years ago. Right. And then, uh, you know, between the documentaries and the, the, the Tom Hanks movie on, on Mr. Rogers. And then you're even seeing the same sort of push for LeVar Burton to get the jeopardy, uh, to get yeah. the jeopardy gig. And it seems like those are like three icons of like, purity like as long as we can rally around them maybe we'll be okay yeah, yeah optimism i think is what yeah like. again it's it's the movement that, and again it's it's arguably more far ahead in music because this debate has been raging since like the 70s when mm -hmm. people are like oh no it's got to be dark and heavy and it's got to have guitar lines in it in order to be taken seriously as real music and like poppy light bubbly stuff isn't real music it isn't real art right but like you've had this kind of like it feels like you know marty mentioned the last five years as a cutoff um that you've had the big debate about optimism about like gaga about swift mm -hmm. um even about katie perry about whether or not they should be considered legitimate artists and i know like i i know people who know far more about music than i do talking about like how that debate arguably applies to people like kylie minogue and madonna you know i mean I am a huge David Bowie fan. I am the biggest David Bowie fan in the world. But like you have people saying, yeah, but Madonna was doing something similar to Bowie in that she was constantly reinventing herself, but never got the same level of credibility or respect that he did because she she never had the same arc that he did in terms of dealing with his demons and writing these songs that were incredibly dark, incredibly and writing his own music and, and all that sort of mm -hmm. stuff going in there as well. And I think it's kind of interesting that we are arguably, as Marty said, then seeing that branch out into other media. I mean, you're right to mention film, for example, where I like I think even even like animated films, like even if you look at things like Pixar's output and kind of like, I know that like the stereotype is, oh, family movies have always been about cartoon dinosaurs and cartoon anthropomorphic dogs and stuff like that. But arguably you like you go back to the 90s and you look at the stuff Disney was putting out. And again, to tie back into like Jack's point about prestige, Kratzenberg was chasing the Oscar with Disney mm -hmm. animated features during the 90s. But you had things like Beauty and the Beast, which is like the best picture nominated relatively serious Disney Renaissance piece. You have like The Lion King, in which like Disney manages, I believe, to get dis dispensation to kill a family member on screen for the first time since Bambi. Um, it's like, it's Hamlet. But, and, and I say this, by the way, as somebody who thinks The Lion King is the best Disney animated movie, but like not to turn into a cliche of myself, but like the you have like The Lion King is Hamlet, but with lions. Mm -hmm. Like that's that's the pitch for your family friendly movie of 1994. Whereas now you look at things like, say, you mentioned Inside Out, which is very much about that, mm -hmm. about joy and sadness existing together. But even you step further aside and you go to the boss baby. No, I'm not going to go to the boss oh, baby. No, you go to Luca. I know. <laughs> He's one of those top five babies. <laughs> <Yeah>. Whoa. <laughs> 
Spoiler uh, alert for Boss Baby 2. Yeah. Undercover you go, baby. You go to something like, uh, there is Boss Baby 2. Um, it was a massive hit yeah, in the pandemic. I think it might uh, have the word undercover in the title as well. It might. Yeah, <laughs> undercover Boss Baby. Um, but like, you look at things like, say, Luca, where Luca is mm. this wonderful, like, mm. it's this animated film. It's from Pixar, which means it's the prestige animated film. Mm-hmm. But it's very much, it's arguably Pixar's first hangout film. Mm-hmm. In that it feels quite like, say, My Neighbor Totoro, for example, um, in that there's no real plot. The highest stakes of this are, you know, and again, the stakes are arguably, oh, my God, they're going to be seen as sea monsters and hunted down. But the real stakes of the story are, man, they might not win that race and get that sexy Vespa scooter that they really want on this summer they're spending together uh, as magical teenagers in southern Italy in the middle of the 1960s. Mm-hmm. It's very much like a kind of a chillaxed, relaxed, optimistic, young people finding themselves kind of thing. And I like that maybe television is branching out in that direction as well where it's like maybe it doesn't need to be dark and edgy or gritty and depressing in order to be taken seriously um mm-hmm. as a statement you know as a, yeah and it is uh, uh, you mentioning the uh 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 totoro and i look at that and kiki's delivery services two yes. movies that are interesting because you can put those again uh, uh alongside other studio ghibli movies that are much darker mm-hmm. you know whether it's princess mononoke or even grave of the fireflies or anything and I made that goof about Babe earlier, but it is interesting that, you know, George Miller is the guy who gives us, you know, 40 years of Mad Max movies, but then he's also has the tender touch to give us Babe and Happy Feet. So Happy Feet is a masterpiece. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And so it feels like uh, some of these works that truly understand what what joy and optimism can be are Mm -hmm. also coming from the same folks who can delve deep into pathos and, and, and loss and suffering. Yeah, we should mention, by the way, you like you mentioned, like pairing off the two Studio Ghibli movies. Um, obviously, like Grave of the Fireflies and Totoro were released together. And one mm-hmm. of my favorite. OK, well, first of all, one of my favorite experiences ever watching movies is to watch Grave of the Fireflies and then watch Totoro, because it really feels like you are taking something powerful when you watch Totoro coming from that low out of Grave mm-hmm. of the Fireflies. But I also love that, like when they moved to the States. They experimented with the order and they tried showing Totoro first and Graves of the Fireflies second. Oh, no. And apparently, oh, no. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. no. because <laughs> no, you just got to like, you, you reach the peak and then boom. Um, yeah. But yeah, apparently people were crying in the aisles as they ran out of the cinema. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, so well, people need happiness to bring it back yeah. to the core point. I No, I think that's so true. Well, and, you know, like... We we've we've been through like the age of cynicism. Uh, I know as a teenager, I was a bit of an edge lord dickhead. I think every teenager is, you know, because you're looking to, you know, like I grew up with South Park, and so everyone was an edge lord dickhead. And now some people make millions to be an edge lord dickhead. I mean, uh, even Ted Lasso ended up in prison on his prom night in his pajamas. You know, <laughs> exactly. I mean, and so like. That's just a story uh, he's going to tell you whether you want it, whether you want him to or not. So it's like I, I do think culturally, pop culturally, we we have gone through phases. We've gone through edgelord phases and we've gone through incredible cynicism, cyn- cynical phases. And we're reaching a point where maybe we're ready for a joy phase. But of course, now the pop culture zeitgeist is so splintered. I don't know if it will make the impact it would have made before. And. It probably wouldn't because it would have never been made before because, mm-hmm. you know, who wants to who wants to see a happy show about someone struggling with being happy? Also, I can't imagine the uh, the sort of the, the the artists that we put up on sort of the higher pantheon yeah. of like of, of modern filmmakers, whether it's, you know, Scorsese or, or Tarantino or, or, you know, PTA or Christopher Nolan Even or anything. Nolan, yeah, yeah. yeah, I can't imagine them ever making anything 
that feels like this, which is fine because when I look at, if I look at a list, if I try to jot down my 25 favorite movies, I would have to imagine 23 or 24 of them are very bleak and depressing. And then that last one, the last one's babe, probably like to be perfectly honest. (laughs) Right. Uh, Right. But well, I mean, that, that, that is the thing. And I mean, like, I, I think like in terms of you look at auteurs, the only one I the only director I can think of who would fit that bill in recent memory, like having that control of the zeitgeist, having that platform, having that capacity to generate childlike wonder and innocence is Spielberg, right? Mm-hmm. And Spielberg, it's notable that like Spielberg coming out of the 80s basically kind of had that beaten out of him where mm. like he did E.T. It was a massive success. It's arguably one of the great movies about childhood wonder. Um, it is magical and, and mystical and it, it stayed with a generation of children. Um, and then like after that, he goes, OK, but the Academy, you're never going to recognize me. So I'm going to try and make movies, you know, like like Schindler's List, um, like Empire of the Sun, like The Color Purple. Um, and, you know, like during the 90s, he mixes those up. So he does like, you know, Jurassic Park in there as well. But then like, you know, Jurassic Park makes a lot of money, but it's Schindler's List that gets him the Academy Award mm-hmm. he's been chasing all his life. And then he gets like uh, Saving Private Ryan. He gets an Oscar for that as well. And and then you see Spielberg. And again, I don't know if it's also as goes Spielberg, go so goes the psycho- psychology of the United States as a nation. Mm-hmm. But like at the turn of the millennium, you see Spielberg kind of getting a bit darker and a bit more introspective. The point where like, I love the adventures of Tintin. I think the adventures of Tintin is massively underrated in terms of Spielberg's filmography. But if you look at his filmography from like AI through to even... BFJ, um, you have this kind of really dark, really depressing, really reflective, really cynical worldview where like even the guy who was doing what Marty like was suggesting, you know, it was impossible for an auteur to do mm-hmm. is now no longer able to do that as purely. He has to be cynical. He has to be making War of the Worlds. He has to be making Minority Report. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when he tries to do something like The Terminal, it backfires horribly. Mm-hmm. When he tries to tap back into nostalgia uh, with Indiana Jones, The King of the Crystal Skull, it does not work. Um, and then when he does Munich, it's like, okay, yeah, this is this is good. I, not what I want. It doesn't make me feel good about myself inside, but it's it's pretty good. Um, yeah. So, like, I, I think there is something to what Marty's saying. That's like, a, in that that's I don't a really good point. But and that, like, if you think about it, that turn of the millennium, that like, you know, after two thousand, like after you know, Matrix was was nothing but cynicism. Like, literally, humans are the virus, right? Uh, well, yeah. No, no. Like, like I love like nineteen ninety nine is arguably one of the greatest years in cinema. It's arguably mm-hmm. the best year since nineteen thirty nine, if not like ever. But you look at the movies that were released that year and, you know, like, yeah, you can point to movies like The Mummy, which is fantastic and great fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but people don't point to The Mummy or The Best Man. They don't point to those movies when they say these are the great movies of 1999 or 10 Things I Hate About You. They don't go, no, those are those, those are the movies that we want. They go, no, 1999 is the year of Fight Club. It's the year of The Matrix. It's the year of American beauty. Um, it's the, yeah, it's the year of, um, ah, oh, what's the, what's the, the follow of Frank Darabont? The Green Mile. Ooh, it's the year one, of, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's the year of the Green, it's a, the year of, like, American history X if you live outside the United States. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like, there's a real sense of, no, this is, like, turn of the millennium, yep. this is what cinema the, looks like. Cynicism. It's, it's literally, <laughs> right. Ed Norton reportedly, <laughs> like, stretching the frame so he looks bulkier, which is one of my favorite stories. <laughs> I thought you were doing a goatsy. I wasn't sure what was happening. <laughs> 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 no, but like that, like you're absolutely right. And so like, yeah, there was no there's no room for wonder, though. I what I will argue to 
to add uh, to add a, a data point to my uh, the age of joy is coming back. Who's getting a comeback, Mr. Brendan, Brendan Fraser? Fraser. Mr. Big, Mummy, but, getting. But a, Brendan getting Fraser's a, getting a com- He's getting a comeback though in like Steven Soderbergh movies about catalytic converters yeah. and Martin Scorsese, and Scorsese movies. Scorsese. <laughs> 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 what I'm saying is, I've seen more written about uh, Brendan Fraser's The Mummy in the last year than I have in the past twenty years. Yeah. The Mummy is making a comeback. <laughs> Oh, he's, I, I, he's also going to be in that uh, Darren Aronofsky movie, The Whale. Yes, I'm like, ooh, yes. these are some bleak roles. <laughs> I like part of part of me just kind of wants him to bring the classic Brendan Fraser energy, though. Mm-hmm. It's like you're watching Killers of the Flower Moon, and it's like Leonardo DiCaprio like crying into his hand, and Robert De Niro reflecting on mortality, and then just Brendan Fraser bursts through the door and makes a ah face at absolutely. Well, hey, nowhere. everybody. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We all have very different Brendan Frasers in our mind. <laughs> I go, I, I go just blast from the past. Man. Blast, blast from the past. past. That's I, go, I, I go, I got a mummy, Rick from the mummy. Yeah, um, you know what? It's Dudley because Durant. he has so much range, you can't do a Brendan Fraser impression because he's so dang talented. <laughs> I do like, man. by the way. Like, we talk about, like, really gritty reboots. Uh, speaking of Frasier, uh, was it, like, the suggestion that the Frasier reboot that's coming up will have everybody but Frasier himself dead, and Frasier is going to be rich now? That was apparently Kelsey Grammer's pitch for doing a Frasier reboot. Oh, and I'm like, God. yeah, I feel like I don't need a gritty Frasier yeah, reboot. That's like my, that's like getting a gritty, uh, a new gritty Superman movie. Like, no, nah, I'm good. What <laughs> yeah, about the, okay. what about, what about All-Star Superman where he saves that girl from committing suicide? Let's right. get that. Oh, we have yeah, Lois and Clark Superman. now. Lois and Clark. Yeah, that, that is true. Yeah. Or, or, or what, it's not Lois and Clark. No. Right? What's it called? Clark and Lois. They Clark reversed. They, they actually reversed it. Like, and they <laughs> and they specifically did not allow Dean Kane on set. He was yeah. not allowed. <laughs> and you do have like Michael B. Jordan Superman, which yeah. I have to imagine will be like I'm very excited. Like put Michael B. Jordan in a movie and it gains a star. So like Space yeah. Jam: A New Legacy has like half a star. Um, it's he, you know because he pops up for twenty seconds. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's a full star more than it would have gotten otherwise. Um, <laughs> But it's Al G rhythm. You didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> to bring to bring it back, I kind of lo- like I love that. Like part of me just admires the cynicism of Space Jam: A New Legacy, where it's like, look, if we ironically point out that the algorithm is evil, mm-hmm. we can make a movie using the algorithm. As long as we point out in the movie that mm-hmm. the algorithm is evil, we can just make the movie and defend ourselves through irony. Yeah, because everybody's so cynical. To bring it back to Jack, but point. and that's the like, thing. And it was too cynical, and we're over it. We're over cynicism. Back to hope. I, I would listen also to like Hamilton, which is the remix like, of the Hamilton soundtrack with the Space Jam soundtrack. It's amazing. Wow. Okay. I By the way, it existed. It, it's uh, why didn't they call that spam? Why didn't they call that Spamilton? And then you get like mix in spam a lot well, as well. That's a different thing. This is Slamilton. <laughs> this is you know because you everyone get up for the slam now. It's the Space Jam Slamilton. Yeah. It's forty eight minutes of your life that you will not regret. Put that. I thought there. you were gonna say you will not get back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh Those no! You will be still regret. better than a new legacy. I, I um, listen to Slamilton uh, a couple times a week just to hype me up. It's great. Mm-hmm. Anyway. It doesn't have the R. Kelly song, right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, it, it, <laughs> mash, it mashes the "I Believe I Can Fly" with the um, the "You'll Be Back" from the King. So it's the it's the villain character. Okay, I believe okay. I can fly. Da 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 da. Okay, that's pretty da, good. Da, 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 yeah. Anyway, wow, Slamilton. <laughs> I did like, by the way, that like. Like of all the intellectual property that like a new legacy could pill for, and it's like yeah, yeah Mad Max Fury Road, Austin Bowers, mm-hmm. uh, you know, classic Looney Tunes, uh, the, the classic sort of Bruce Tim stuff. I do like that at least it had the wit and taste to go. Or Kelly, no, yeah, 
Yeah, it's like, eh, no, that's too much no. even for us. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But here is the uh, Milk Boys from A Clockwork Orange. <laughs> They're sitting courtside. <laughs> yeah. You know what kids really love? The Droogs. Um, <laughs> oh, that's their name. Violence were very their names, cool. So I, just called them the, I just called them the Milk Boys. The Milk, the milk Boys, yeah. I like that. We got the reference. We got the reference. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Whew. Well, anyway, I feel like that's uh, there's no better wrap up point than the Milk Boys. Um, <laughs> that does really, yeah, that sounds like the kind of like boy band that Malcolm McDowell kind of like founded afterwards. It's like, um, uh, before we go from Ted Lasso, uh, yeah, yeah. just a single out, I think Juno Temple uh, is phenomenal as, yeah, as Keely she's Jones. Excellent. Um, she's the mm. and in the cast. I think she's one of the best performers there. Um, I think she's been fantastic for a couple of years. She's done a lot of great work in American film and television. I really like that she does this and i would argue she's probably one of the only actors in the cast who really nails when there is a joke um mm. in that like i think i think that like she's the actor who's like yeah this is a sitcom right mm -hmm. it's like mm -hmm. okay yeah oh no and, and uh, phenomenal dramatic. casting phenomenal yeah. casting i mean all all around phenomenal the the craziest thing for me is coach beard uh like as as you start digging yeah. through people's imdb nothing just coach what beard of course not. He was an extra in the advertisements. Like that's he he was the guy who stood behind Jason Sudeikis in a four minute promo for NBC Sports about seven years ago. Right. And like and Apple TV were like, would you like to be the co-lead of our new TV show? <laughs> well, no. And like, I want to say he has writing credits. Um, yeah. yeah, he has writing yeah. credits for like Key and Peele. Um, and other like uh, improv based like Comedy mm -hmm. Central sitcoms. And so I can only assume uh, I know uh, Jason Sudeik is also big in the improv community. So like maybe they know each other through the theater community, but just a pile of nothing. And he kills it as, <laughs> yeah. uh, like yeah. as the second lead, uh, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Great casting. All right. Just, well, just phenomenal show. Like if you you probably have an Apple Plus subscription that you don't know about. Yeah. So get on it, watch Ted Lasso, and maybe see. I mean, Jason Momoa is great. I haven't watched it. Yeah, there's uh, the other show where uh, would you go Justin Thoreau was shirtless. Would you go in blind? Jesus. Nice. And it's the Mosquito Coast is the one you're thinking of. The remake. Mosquito movie, Coast. Oh, yeah. yeah. The Peter Weir adaptation of the novel. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know. I hear it's got some bite to it. I mean, it's I, like I you hope think, it doesn't suck. You think Darren is done and you think he's run dry. And then and then he and then he does these little flybys and and it gets you every time. Yeah, I mean, he puts I a cherry on top. Some, I hear the show has some great buzz. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not repellent though. It it certainly does not suck. <laughs> Don't think we're gonna top that. <laughs> oh, well played, Jack. You know well what? Played. There's not a lot of mosquito puns, so that's fair. No, no, that's no, fair. No. I took the obvious one. Um, just to shut it. But now down. we're just coasting. Oh, there's so many coast puns. We forgot about know, the second word. Just, yeah, yeah. All right, we're ending. We're ending here. Uh, thanks, everybody. But, but I can bring it back to C. Um. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for watching and or listening to this. Uh, go watch Ted Lasso. It's so phenomenal. Once again, I've been Jack Packard here for The Escapist. I'm Darren Mooney. I'm Marty Sleva. And... Buy as oh well before I buy out of here. Uh, as a reminder, uh, we're probably gonna shut down the podcast for a couple weeks as we retool. We'll probably come back with a different name. Tune into the Escapist and find out, or or don't. We're going on a temporary hiatus. So brilliant! <laughs> You're so good. <laughs>